Uh, thank you for being here um, for the library talk. Um, these uh, talks are set up for us to uh, talk about subjects of interest and also to talk about the, um, you know, how to do the academic life in certain areas. And so today we're going to be talking about uh, the reformers and what we can learn from them, but also talk about uh, how to do historical theology well or studying history well. Um, and incorporating that into your research. And so today we have Dr. Timothy George with us, and he is from uh, Beeson Divinity School, where he is Dean and Professor of Divinity. Uh, Dr. George, thank you so much for being here with us today. We're excited to have you. Thank you. I'm honored to be with you. Uh, so the first question I have for you is, um, it's no pressure, just, you know, maybe the academic choices, uh, future choices for these students may be in the balance, but uh, why would anyone, or maybe I shouldn't ask it this way, but why would, what's the importance of studying historical theology and what can we gain from it? And maybe what does it add to uh, other academic um, disciplines like biblical studies and theology? When I start uh, my courses in uh, church history at Beeson, I always give a lecture uh, basically arguing that church history is the most important subject you can take in seminary. Why? Because it impacts everything else you're going to study and the way you do it. For example, the Bible. Maybe you're interested in the Bible. Well, of course, you want to study the languages and the syntax and the background and all that stuff. But you also want to know how the Bible has been studied and understood and read through the history of the church. That impacts the way we read it today. And so every discipline, whatever it is, uh, is going to be impacted by looking at it historically. Uh, we are his, uh, Human beings are historical beings. Uh, one of the most important features of being a human being is memory. We remember what has happened. Well, the study of history is a way to work on our memory, our collective memory, as Christians, as believers, as theologians, as people of the church. And so if we never study history, uh, then we lapse into amnesia. Amnesia is forgetting. It's forgetting that you have a past. And that leads uh, to all kinds of horrible consequences in, in, in real life and in the life of the church. Okay. Um, so when, when students go to study historical theology, or, um, or especially here in the reference section, which is I'm over at the library, we have a number of students who come in to, uh, to study, um, to do papers on mm -hmm. you know, historical individuals, where they uh, interact with primary sources and uh, secondary sources, but one of the things that I see with students is that they um, they have a, a little bit of a struggle connecting um, that historical individual to their historical context. And uh, so I was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, ways, best practices in connecting the historical uh, or the individual with their historical context, and how that can help them understand that individual like Luther or Calvin a little bit better. First thing I'm going to say is that everybody has a story. Mm -hmm. And so history is stories. It's stories about real people who really lived, who've had real issues in their life, struggles. And so when you read about them, when you study their life story, uh, then you enter into those struggles. Uh, I think there is a kind of continuum throughout human history that we are all connected together. And so um, whatever, whether you're re reading about somebody who lived 300 years before Jesus in Greece or somewhere, or you're reading about Luther, you're reading about somebody from the 19th century, there are certain common things that will be present in their life. Uh, they all were born. Uh, they all grew up somewhere. Uh, most of them got their hearts broken. 
Most of them had to face big health issues in their life. Well, those are the, all things we face. So there is a continuity and a commonality between their story and your story. Now, I think one of the things that we learned from the period of the Renaissance is to place figures of history in their context. And so we, 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 we develop that word, that awesome word, uh, perspective. Uh, historians are always talking about perspective. Well, a perspective is how you see something. It's the angle of vision you bring to something. And so that's very important to know what's happening around the time they were alive, uh, what the issues were they faced, how the social, political, economic context impacted that. All that's a part of really understanding their story. But I'm against the kind of history that reduces uh, personal stories to these factors, social, economic, political factors. That's called reductionism. And it's often practiced today, uh, a kind of a secularized view of doing history. I think it misses some very important things about the human as a person, a person of interest, a person with a unique story. Now, as a Christian, of course, we have another challenge, and that is to take all these personal stories understood in context and with perspective to place those in the context of the story of God, the story of the Bible, the story of faith, of which we are also a part. And so then we begin to see its relevance to the life of the church today, to spiritual issues that we face today. Maybe let's explore that a little bit more because I know there's a debate between uh, maybe even some church historians about uh, approaching history in a, prov you know, in a providential mm -hmm. way and, and analyzing it in that way as opposed to a strictly historical way. Would you, do you have some thoughts that you'd yeah. like to share on that? Yeah, one's right and one's wrong. <laughs> uh, I mean... Um, I'm a providentialist. Now, I want to, do, I want to be a chastened providentialist. Mm -hmm. I think there is a danger, and this is sometimes seen by some very pious historians, of kind of interpreting everything in a religious lens without taking seriously the context and understanding the many, many factors that go into human life and human decision. I'm against that kind of providential his, history writing. But uh, I, I think to, to look at history providentially is to look at it as a Christian. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you don't believe in God, of course, a lot of historians don't. Well, it's hard to argue why you should be a providential historian. A providentialist is a person who believes that God has a purpose, a pattern, a design for what is happening in history. And our job is to try to listen to that, look for that, not be overly dogmatic in saying that's the only way to see it. Uh, but at the same time, to be open to being surprised. I think that's one of the things from being a historian that I, I've found is I'm surprised all the time. I didn't know that. Could that be true? And uh, all the time, surprise leads to new discoveries. So be surprised that maybe even God can be interested in this world. He made it. He has a purpose or plan for it. So yes, I, I accept providence as a legitimate category. I'm not a historical reductionist, as a lot of people on this side of the Enlightenment are, because they leave out... Uh, seems to me very important factors in understanding correctly. So um, that doesn't mean you have to be a Christian or you have to be a believer uh, to study history. There are ways of studying it quite apart from faith presuppositions. But if you're studying things of, of the Spirit, it's going to leave you with, I think, a very partial view of things. Um, so, uh, for students who are studying in historical theology, as they, as they look at these figures, 
um, as they begin to study them maybe for the first time? What would be some ways that they need to approach uh, these figures to be able to understand their context? And what, what things do they consider? And maybe even, uh, since we're a library, maybe even some books that might be helpful, and especially with the reformers, to set them in their context. Well, you know, the most important thing to say is, is to read these figures themselves, read what they wrote. So I'm, I'm a big advocate of primary sources. Now we all use secondary sources, and sometimes secondary sources are good ways into the primary sources. You see what a great historian like Roland Bainton, what's he quoting on Luther? Well, it leads you back to Luther. Uh, but you don't want to stay with secondary sources. If you only read what other people say about the people you're interested in, you're going to get a very warmed-over, second-hand view of things. So burrow back into the original sources. Read them as carefully as you can. Sometimes that'll be difficult. They don't, don't always speak in modern lingo. So you've got to learn. You've got to teach yourself to sort of think the way they thought and use the language the, the way they use the language. Uh, I did my dissertation uh, on early 17th century Puritanism, Calvinism, and um, you know they just wrote and thought differently than we do today. So it took me a while to kind of get that lingo down, to see how they were even spelling words back in those days, Shakespeare's days. We don't always spell those kind of words that way today, or do that kind of print they did. But that's a part of being educated to these sources. You you. You submit yourself to them. You learn to think and learn and read the way they did, and things open up. Um, so, how are what are some ways that they can? This obviously takes time, but what are some ways that they can get into the mind of these? Uh, I mean, obviously, primary sources, and we'll come back to primary sources in a second. But um, how should they be thinking when they approach uh, the? Uh, the way they spoke. How can they get an act? Uh, I'm sorry, this was not a planned question, so I'm kind of stumbling over it. So let me start over. Can I have a uh, not planned answer? <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. To uh, a non planned question? Uh, okay. Yes, that would be perfectly fine. Um, but uh, so when they're approaching these guys and they're using a different language than what we would use, yeah. Uh, yeah. how can they go about trying to unlock what they mean with that language? What, what are some ways that they can approach um, uh, you know, understanding that language? Well, I think here, you know, the importance of words, of, of, of dictionaries, of concordances, uh, of uh, studying a language itself is to open yourself to a whole new world. And to understand that they did speak a different language than we do. Even if they spoke English, they spoke a different language than we do today. So to enter into that mindset, there's a book called The Past is a Foreign Country. And I think that's, that's a way of saying when we study the past, we're like going on a journey. Uh, a journey not in space but in time. We're going back to see what it was like. And, and what I try to do is to visualize what it would have been like to have been alive at the time of the Reformation. You know, one of the things they didn't have that we have are lights. So it was all by candles. Uh, which, think about it, that's all we had to read by. Candles or fireplaces, that would change the way we process information. What they ate, uh, how they worked, what they wore, the clothes they wore, all of these material factors is kind of the technical term for this, I think impact the way we approach and understand them. But I begin with the fact of their common humanity and what the questions that were bugging them were. What really motivated them to do what they did? I think that's the primary historical question for understanding their context, for getting under their skin, uh, for seeing kind of what motivated them to do certain things. What, what was their motivation? Why did they do what they were doing? 
That's an important question to ask. Okay. And so you mentioned primary sources and, and accessing those. And so that's something that we stress in our library workshops mm -hmm. here is to first deal with the primary source before mm -hmm. you move to the secondary source. Good, uh, good Answer for your you. questions from that. So uh, when, uh, when you are approaching someone like Luther, who has, what, 50 to 60 volumes now, that's only um, in part of the English yeah, translation. Yeah. If you go to the original Weimar Ausgabe, it's 121 folio volumes, Martin Luther. Yeah, I, I don't think anybody's. I haven't read right every now. word of it. I haven't. I've read yeah. a lot of it, but not every word of it. Um, so, for the students, how do they approach? Like, if they're looking at how uh, Luther approaches Scripture, or if they're wanting to see what he has to say about baptism, and they're writing a paper to try and understand him and interact with him, what's the best way to approach such a large body of work? This is where historical handbooks can be helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, there are series of historical writings. Uh, one is quite dated now is the Cambridge History of Europe, where they have different chapters, different books on different periods of time. Those are helpful. They're helpful for doing exactly what you're talking. Where do I go to find this? What's the best book about that? Mm -hmm. How do I get back to the primary sources? Now, in Luther's case, uh, the 121 volumes, unless you're a really a devoted Luther scholar, you're probably not going to read all 121 volumes. Uh, and even if you did, that doesn't mean you'll understand it. Uh, because Paul Althaus, who was a great Luther scholar in Germany, said Luther is a vast ocean. Many people drown to death in him. Well, that's true. I mean, you, you, you can see that. So you need somebody who's, who's done that hard primary work of saying, this, you ought to go here. You ought to start there. And that'll be a guide to you. Nothing wrong with that. Because no human being is uh, omniscient. You know, that's something only God is. So we have to begin somewhere in a partial way. We grow, we go, go deeper, we learn where the dead ends are, where new avenues open up. And it's okay to stand on the shoulder of other giants who have been there before you. So, for example, in the case of Luther, if, if I want to know what Luther thought to say about baptism, for example, I've given a series of lectures of Luther's doctrine on baptism. Well, um, he wrote treatises on it. You can find them. Look in the index of Luther's works. You can see. But you can also go to a book like, uh, I mentioned Paul Althaus. He has a very famous book called The Theology of Martin Luther. You can, he has a whole chapter or two on baptism. A lot of these kinds of books will be uh, intros into this or that angle of their study rather than just facing all 121 volumes in German and Latin. Use the English translations. Uh, there are 55 volumes in the original American edition of Luther. They're adding about 13, mostly of his exegetical writings now, that have not been translated until now. So oh, this is growing. It's a growing body of literature, even in English. Find out wh where, the, where the sources are, what the subjects you're interested in are treated, and dig in. All right, so um, now we're going to switch from more practical questions about how to approach the subject to... Um, just some questions that we had about the theology of the reformers, kind of their context, and maybe get you to expound mm -hmm. on those a little mm -hmm. bit. Uh, and so I'm forgetting what they are, so I'm going to read it first. Give me one second. Um, what are some of the habits of the reformers that pastors and scholars can, uh, can maybe pick up from the reformers if they were to study their lives? And then what are some habits that they might want to avoid? One thing we need to disabuse ourselves of is the idea that the reformers set out to be reformers. They didn't. Um, they were surprised when things happened the way they happened. Uh, what, the past, what, what they were all were pastors and preachers. 
uh, without exception, all the mainline 16th century reformers were pastors and teachers. And so they were going about their daily, weekly work of preaching and teaching the scriptures to their people when along comes the Reformation. And so uh, their habits were the habits of a good and faithful shepherd of his flock. They spent time uh, in prayer. They spent time in catechizing the young people and the other new, new, new believers. Uh, they spent time in what we would call today pastoral care and counseling, I guess. Uh, listening, writing letters. One of the best books on Luther you can read is called Luther Letters of Spiritual Counsel. They're letters he wrote to people who were writing to him with questions they had in their life about all kinds of things, family crises, death in the family, theological questions, am I really a, a one of the elect or not, all those kind of questions they wrote to him, he answered them. So the habits uh, that they cultivated were those kind of habits. They were the habits of a pastor, uh, habits of a shepherd who cared for, for their flock. Now, in terms of their intellectual work, they were also serious students of the Bible. So they read the scriptures in Greek and Latin and Hebrew. And they did this not just to prepare for their su Sunday sermon, but because they wanted to understand it as deeply as they possibly could. And so I would say you, if you're going to be a, a, a student of the Reformation, you need to follow their footsteps in being a good student, first of all, and then taking that study back to the Reformation. The other thing they did is the, they didn't just limit themselves to reading the people who were alive at the time they wrote. Um, the Reformers were great students of the early church fathers, especially Augustine, but also Chrysostom and you know, Basil the Great. They read all these wonderful uh, leaders and teachers of the early church and incorporated them into their own writings, which is to say they saw themselves as a part of the whole body of Christ extended throughout time as well as space. And I think that's a good habit of mind to get into if you're going to study anybody in the history of God's people. Uh, you know, the Christian faith didn't begin with you. It didn't begin with your grandmother. It didn't even begin with Martin Luther. So you want to understand this in the broadest context and widest context possible. So uh, talking about some of the... Uh, seeing themselves in a larger uh, stream of Christianity and knowing that the early church asked questions about Christology and mm -hmm. the Trinity. Mm -hmm. What were the questions that the Reformers were asking um, about, and how were they asking and why were they important to them at that time? Mm -hmm. The Reformers took on board the theological legacy of the early church. So on those questions you mentioned, Trinity, Christology, they were not innovators. Uh, in fact, they regarded innovation as a very dangerous thing. It led to heresy. And so um, I would say they were very traditional, uh, even Catholic Christians in their doctrine of the Trinity and their doctrine of Jesus Christ. Uh, but, but they were framing these questions, Trinity and Christology, in light of new issues that had arisen in the life of the church, uh, particularly in the late medieval context in which they were all living. And the two burning questions of the 16th century Reformation were, what can I do to be saved, Acts 16.31, question of soteriology, of salvation. How does the Christological affirmation of the early church apply to the issue of my relationship to God? That was the question. And the second question is, where can I find a true church? 
because they had come to doubt that the church as it presented itself really was very clear about the first question, the gospel question. So those were the burning, burning questions of the day. And then if there was a third one, it's how do you apply this gospel they were discovering in Paul and elsewhere to the real life of the world in which God has placed us? Uh, the reformers were all eminently practical people. They were pastors, they were preachers, and they were, we might say today, men of affairs. They were concerned about uh, marketplace issues. They were concerned about the condition of poor people in their cities. Uh, they were concerned about the real world and how the gospel in particular can be applied to those real life issues. So that drove them in some other directions. So those were the three big things. Uh, I believe, how can I be saved, where is the true church, and how does all this apply to the real stuff of real life? And how would you, uh, for, for us today, how do we need to approach those questions, should, um, those same questions? I mean, should we be asking them, or have they already been answered, or what's, how, how, are we, uh, how do we interact with, that, with the questions that they had? Well, I think we begin by listening well to their questions and listening well to their answers. It doesn't mean that they got everything 100% exactly right. We know that all the great reformers uh, had some blind spots. They're not perfect people. Somebody asked me after the lecture today, uh, what about Luther's uh, horrible things he said about the Jews? Did he really say that? Well, he said some pretty bad things. And I think we have to admit that. And we have to say, as I did in the preface to my theology of the reformers, he should have known better. You know, with his great understanding of God's grace and mercy, he should have known better. We can say that to him. We can point our finger at him and say that as long as we remember we have three fingers pointing back at us because we miss things too. We're not exempt from that limitation. So listen well to their answers. Uh, I would say begin with that. And then uh, I don't believe that, um, you know, we have to come up with new gospels. I don't believe we have to come up with new answers. But they will be put in a new and different way because we face new and different questions. We face, just like they did in our day, situations that were not present in the time of the Reformation. Well, one of them, uh, I would say, is the whole question of what is it like to live in a world where many and a growing, apparently growing number of people don't believe in God. Now, I'm not saying there's no one in the 16th century who didn't believe in God. There were probably atheists around, but they were under the rocks. You know, it was not a widely respectable position. You wouldn't go to any university and hear a professor say, ha, I don't believe in God, out with that. Well, today it's hard to find one who does believe in God in a secular university. The world has changed. Our worldview has changed. We live in a different context. We live on this side of the Enlightenment, on this side of the great devastations of war and so forth in the 20th century. And so uh, the way we study the Bible, the way we study the history of the church, and the way in particular in which we present the gospel has to be shaped by the questions that are there in our world. But I think the answers we give are not different in essence from the answers the reformers gave. God is the same. The gospel is the same. The Bible is the same. But the way in which we present that, the way in which we get people to listen to us when we talk, that may have changed some. And we need to be sensitive and aware to that. I think one of the, uh, at least when I took church history, uh, one of the things that was most foreign to me about um, the Reformers was uh, the debates that they had over things like the Lord's Supper. 
like especially the way they debated, like mm -hmm. with Luther and, and uh, Zwingli, mm -hmm. for instance. Um, why were these topics so important to them? And then, uh, and why did they fight for them so, uh, we'll just say hard in that sense. Yeah. Okay, two answers. One, the first answer is kind of a silly answer. Uh, they just uh, were hard to get along with. Mm -hmm. They had a bad personality. That they were uh, irascible. Mm -hmm. uh, you wouldn't have liked them. Uh, that's one answer. It's not a serious answer. The serious answer is why they fought so hard over things like the Lord's Supper and stuff like that. Two words. Truth matters. Truth matters. And so they saw something at stake in those debates about what the Bible teaches, about what the gospel says, about how it applies to the life of faith, the life of the church. Truth matters, and something was at stake. Now, for us today, like baptism, I'm a Baptist, I don't know what you are, but um, anyway, um, we have all kinds of different views on baptism, um, all kinds of different views on the Lord's Supper. And you might have your view, and I might have mine, and she might have hers, and that's okay. It's kind of like, you know, what's your preference? Uh, which, which, which brand of ice cream do you like best? Chocolate, vanilla, strawberry? It's that level of decision. It's not life-shattering. <laughs> and, and so we reduce these big issues, big in their day, not so big in ours, to this kind of preference. This is a part of what it means to live in the postmodern world, where truth doesn't matter, preferences matter. Reformers lived in a different kind of world where they were really concerned about what God wants us to do and how He wants us to live and to act and to believe. And that's why they studied the Bible so, so devoutly. That's why they argued, sometimes vociferously and offensively from, to our taste, over things like, is Christ really bodily present in the Lord's Supper? And do you baptize infants or not? And why? I mean, they really cared about those things because they had a different understanding of Scripture and of truth. Uh, even though I am offended when I read some of the language they used, I'm going to say they should have known better about that too. Nonetheless, I'm glad they cared enough about truth to argue over it and not to skate over it the way we sometimes do on whatever issues we're talking about. Uh, so that's a part of the adjustment we have to make when we go back into their world. Uh, not just the issues, but the way they approach them and the depth of feeling and commitment they brought to them. You mentioned earlier that uh, prayer, uh, pastoral uh, duties, and, and care were important um, for the Reformers. And I, we've asked this question a couple of times with some of the people that we've had here, but how does prayer, the spiritual disciplines, and even uh, your own pastoral or ministry, um, uh, your service to the church, how does that impact your uh, academic life, and that, or how does that fit together? Let me answer that question by talking about when I was a student uh, at Harvard Divinity School back in the 1970s. I was there for most of the 70s. Uh, I was also a pastor of an inner city church, a church that had maybe 30 or 40 there on Sunday morning, but we started a Friday night Bible study. Young people came. Many became Christians. I baptized 25 the first year. It was kind of a revival that happened. Mm -hmm. So that was my little flock. Uh, and so during the day, 
I would go to school and study uh, all the stuff they were throwing at me, new, challenging, difficult kind of things. But then at night, I came home to that little inner city church, to the young people particularly that were becoming new believers. And I had to deal with all the issues a pastor dealt with. You know, issues of life and death, of marriage and divorce, of child abandonment, of poverty, etc., etc. And so I learned how to do theology in stereo. I learned how to do theology learning about the ministry while I was doing ministry. And that, I think, has impacted the way I think about both theology, study, and uh, the, the life of ministry. Uh, we do not and we should not even try to isolate ourselves from the real difficult issues of life. But we immerse ourselves in them and uh, that will drive you to prayer. If you're not already, if you don't already have a discipline of faithful prayer, you will develop one or else you'll lose your faith. It's that kind of situation. And I sort of think that's the way Luther approached it. You know, Luther uh, was a person deeply immersed in prayer. Uh, struggle. That was a part of his experience. One time Melanchthon came in and found Luther sprawled out on the floor. He'd been crying, sweating, praying, screaming to God, and he'd apparently been doing this for hours. Uh, well, you know, um, sometimes we have to be brought to that point by the real issues in life. Uh, sometimes people who are not Christians, you know, say, why can you talk to so-and-so about, about getting them to see their need for Christ? kind of evangelism. Well, we try all kinds of things. God can use all kinds of things. I'm not against any one certain way or approach. But my experience has told me that with some people, they come to the moment of faith only when life has um, kind of turned them upside down, when they're at their wits end, when they don't have a leg to stand up. In that kind of moment, they are ready to hear the message of grace and forgiveness. And what's true, I think, with reference to evangelizing unbelievers is also true with reference to learning how to study uh, the Reformers. Because sometimes uh, the question of our prayer life and our discipline of faith uh, arises out of our lack of such in the real crisis moments of life. Well, I'm going to ask one last question of you, and then I'll open it up to you guys to ask questions. But what advice would you give uh, a young student who is looking at historical theology um, as a field of study? What, what would you tell them? Don't do it. No, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> the opposite. Do it. And, um, you know, I think the church needs more theologians and more pastors. Those are not mutually exclusive terms more pastor-theologians who are well aware of the history of the church. Um, for example, the issues we face today cannot be solved by reading how-to manuals or by going to weekend seminars at this or that camp. Uh, it comes out of a deep grappling with where the church has been, what the issues they faced were. Um, a year or so ago, I guess it was, there was a big uh, debate among evangelicals. I wasn't involved in it. I thought it was kind of a dead-end debate. But it was a debate about how we frame the doctrine of the Trinity in terms of current gender issues and questions like that. Well, if you're going to deal with that or any other issue that, that comes up, and there are always new ones that do, you're going to be at a distinct disadvantage 
unless you know how the church has dealt with that issue at different crisis moments, different turning points. So that's one good reason why you do it. How you do it? Well, I think uh, you, you can't know everything about everything, but you can choose. Uh, I always tell my students uh, when you're studying, um, you need to choose your own special area of study, whatever that is. That'll be different for all of you probably. Uh, if you're a doctoral student, some area you're going to write your dissertation on, you're going to really try to make a mark for scholarship there, da-da-da-da-da. But you don't need to limit yourself to that. Uh, you need to choose uh, a philosopher, a theologian, a composer, and a poet outside of your area of interest and become a little mini-expert on them. Why do you want to do that? Well, uh, it'll give you, I'm going to use that word again, perspective. It'll help you to understand better what it is you really are wanting to focus on and dig deeply into because you're seeing it from a different angle. And I had a teacher who said that to me once, and even though at the time I kind of growled and said, why, why do I have to do that? I'm really interested in this. But now, looking back on it, I'm glad he pushed me to do that. So the philosopher I chose was Plato. Well, if you know anything about the history of theology or the history of uh, the Christian faith, you know Plato's had a big influence on it, maybe for good or for ill, but you need to know Plato. The composer I chose was uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, greatest composer who ever lived in the history of the world. You know uh, what Karl Barth said, when God's in heaven, the angels play Bach. When he's out of town, they play Mozart. Uh, so Bach... And every day, just about every single day, I listen to Bach. It nourishes my soul. Uh, and then the poet I chose was John Donne. The greatest, I think, uh, living uh, poet of the 17th century. An amazing uh, person. I was a pastor also and a preacher as well as a poet. So I encourage you to think along those kind of lines. Uh, more broadly, dig a deep well, of course, into what it is you're going to study and write about and produce books for, but also th think about how this fits into the whole scheme of the life of the mind, the life of faith, the life of God's people.